Sunday of the year, and it's also the last Sunday we'll be spending in Revelation for a little while. Uh, For me, looking at the letters to the seven churches uh, and this last letter to the seventh church is perfect timing. Um, Because maybe more so than the letters to all the other churches, it confronts us with a challenge to embrace Jesus and follow him fully. Uh, This is the letter to the church at Laodicea, and it is found in chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. And as you make your way there, I want to give us all an exhortation, just a word of pastoral encouragement that I intend to apply as well as apply to all of you. Many times when we read the scriptures, it's easy for us to separate ourselves from the correction that is there. And so as an example, when we read the Gospels and we see Jesus confronting the Sadducees and the Pharisees, you know, we kind of sit on the sidelines of that conflict between Jesus and these religious people and we say, sick them, Jesus. (laughs) You know, you tell them, right? And we fail to see ourselves in the story as people in need of correction from the Savior. Or we, or we read, or we read maybe Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, his his problem child church, and we we say, boy, I'm sure glad our church isn't like that. I'm sure glad that I would never get into sin the way that those people did, right? Of course we wouldn't, right? We're not like that. I mean, so far none of us got drunk today at communion, so we do have that going for us, right? <laughs> Um, (laughs) But uh, the church at Corinth had some real problems, right? One of them was that. But we tend to separate ourselves from correction being given. So here's the exhortation. Don't do that today. If the shoe fits as we're going through this text, wear it. And repent. Amen? Don't take God's word and draw a separation between the word of God and yourself and say, well, I'm sure glad I don't need to apply any of this. Because the fact is, is that the scriptures, according to, according to Paul, are written for our instruction for our instruction. Not for the instruction of some other people there and then, but for us now and today. So with that in mind, uh, I want to ask the Holy Spirit to help us to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, including ours, and to the people, including us. So let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your, of, of your word to us, your scriptures. Father, help us not to separate ourselves from the correction that is here. Help us not to take the attitude of, boy, this is wonderful application for someone else. But help us to hear what your spirit is saying to us and to our church. 
here in this new year, Father, help us to be zealous and to repent of sin and to follow Christ fully. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me find my specs here. Um, I want to read this uh, read this letter to you. Uh, beginning verse 14 there of Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither hot, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and eat with him and he with me the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, uh, I want you to look at verse 14 with me. Once again, we see Jesus describing himself to the church using language that is borrowed from John's vision of him in chapter 1. Now, this description uh, borrows from uh, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1, which include two uses of the word amen. Now, let me explain a little bit. Uh, the word amen is a Hebrew word. You may not know that, but you know some Hebrew if you know amen. Uh, amen is a Hebrew word that means it's true, or I affirm this. And that's why in a lot of churches, if you've been in an African-American church in particular, uh, you will hear a lots of shouting of the word amen. Amen? Amen. And they'll say, they'll say, oh, preach it, brother. Amen. Right? And I love that, by the way. So feel free to do that. Um, but the, the, scripture says, the Scripture says that Jesus is the Amen. And what does that mean? It means that he is the one who confirms all of God's promises to be true. That he is the one who says, yes, that's true. All of God's promises are yes in him. In fact, Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul describes Jesus this way. He says, For as many as are the promises of God, they are in Him, they are yes. Therefore, through Him is our Amen to the glory of God through us. The point is, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises because, Je because all of God's promises are fulfilled by Jesus and in Jesus. 
And so he is the amen. He is the confirmation, the affirmation that God's words are true. Now, Jesus also describes himself this way as the faithful and true witness. He, can, he borrows language there from uh, chapter 1, verse 5, that he is the one, who, in other words, who reliably testifies that by his life about who God is, and he is genuine in every way. Faithful to reveal who God is, and he is true. He is genuine uh, in every way. His testimony about God is real, and it is true. Now, there's something else here in verse 14 you need to see. Uh, it says, the beginning of God's creation. Now, don't get tripped up by that. Okay? It's, it, it looks ambiguous in English. But it's not ambiguous in the original language of Greek that this is written in. Okay? The word beginning is the word arche. And you don't need to know that, but you do need to know this. It means that he is the originator, the one who begins creation. The one who starts the creation of everything else in the world. In other words, Jesus is not the first of God's creations. He is the first one who begins creation. Does that make sense? I hope so. Don't get tripped up by this. The language there is very specific. Jesus is not a created being. He is the one who brings creation into being. And so, in other words, this is... When Jesus speaks, it is God speaking. The creator of all things that exist. Of him and to him and through him are all things. That's what this verse is saying when it says, He is the beginning of God's creation. He is there and brings all of creation into existence. His power is unlimited. Unlimited. And all of these things are relevant to what he's about to tell them in this letter. Before we get into it, we want to look at the, uh, the city of Laodicea itself so that you understand some things about this place because they are also relevant to what Jesus says to the church that is located there. First of all, Laodicea is a rich city because of the major industries that are located there. First of all, it was a financial center. It was a place that literally minted its own coinage. It was a center for banking and for finance, and you could get loans all over the world. It was a place that was so rich that when an earthquake leveled the entire town, the Roman uh, government said, hey, we'll, we'll make you some loan guarantees to get everything fixed and uh, help you rebuild. And the city of Laodicea said, ah, don't worry about that. We got plenty of money. We'll rebuild it on our own. This was a rich town. And uh, one of the reasons it was also rich was because it was famous for the black wool that its sheep produced and, it, and this black wool was used in high-end luxury clothing and also high-end luxury carpets. So if you were a very wealthy person, you had 
Laodicean wool in your clothes and in your rugs in your house. And finally, there was also a famous medical school there that was attached to the temple of one of the local gods. And this medical school had become renowned the world over for the salve that they produced that would heal various diseases that people had in their eyes. Now, all of these things are, are, are going to come into play in this letter. And this city was built on an elevated plateau that made it virtually impregnable except for one thing. It had no supply of fresh water. There was no fresh water in the area. And so what they did was they built an underground aqueduct from the nearest town, which was Hierapolis, which was about six miles to the north. And Hierapolis was great because there were hot springs there that naturally occurred and all this, this beautiful mineral water would come bubbling up from the ground and people would go there to take the baths and all that kind of thing, right? As people used to do in this country. Uh, hot Springs, Arkansas was a place they would travel to to go and do this, right? Well, they would go to Hierapolis uh, for that. Well, it was the closest water supply to Laodicea, and so they built this aqueduct from the hot springs there underground all the way to their town, six miles. Well, by the time the water had traveled six miles, it was no longer hot. In fact, it was barely warm. And it was dirty, and it was full of minerals, and it was not tasty. It was just lukewarm, gross water. And that's going to come into play in this letter also. Uh, the, the, other, the city on the other side of it was Colossae, which Paul wrote a letter to the church there called Colossians. Uh, that city on the other side had a cold, clear, freshwater stream that went through. And that would have been better, but it was 10 miles away, and that was a lot more pipe to run, and so they didn't do that. All of that's important as background to what Jesus says to this church. I want you to look at the text with me again, uh, because right here, verse 15, all the other letters begin with something that Jesus praises. Some kind of commendation that he gives them. But in this letter, there's no commendation. It's all correction. Verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, just like the water coming into your town, I will spit you out of my mouth. Y'all ever been working outside and come in sweaty? You know, just what you want right then is a nice tall glass of lukewarm water, right? No. Or how about when you come in from outside around here and it's cold? You know, no one, is, no one is thinking, you know, gosh, there's a foot of snow outside and it's 20 degrees. I know just what I want. A nice cup of lukewarm water. No, that's not what you want. 
right? You're thinking cocoa with marshmallows by a fire. You're thinking about coffee, maybe a little heavy cream in it, some whipped cream on top. I don't know. You're thinking about something warm that, you can, that will warm your hands around the mug and that you can sit and enjoy, right? That warms you on the inside because you're cold on the outside. Jesus says that this church is lukewarm. And he would rather they were either cold or hot. Now let me tell you what the difference is from a spiritual perspective. Because these are metaphors that Jesus is using. If you're a hot person, spiritually speaking, you are someone who is fully committed all the way in for Jesus. If you are cold, spiritually speaking, you are someone who rejects Jesus and everything about him you want nothing to do with him. Jesus says it's better to be one or the other than what these people are, which is somewhere in between. They kind of straddle the fence. You know, I want, to, I want to go to church and be a decent human being, you know, but Christianity is kind of a hobby for me. Um, you know, it's just what nice people do on Sunday morning. By the way, when Karen and I lived in Dallas, Dallas is a city uh, with dozens of churches, many of which have tens of thousands of people. Tens of thousands of people. Imagine. There, there are at least five churches in Dallas alone that have more than 20,000 people on a Sunday morning. You can imagine this. It's like, it's like going to a, a professional baseball game to go to church. It's huge. It's unbelievable. But what we also discovered is that a lot of the people who go to church down there in the buckle of the Bible Belt are there because... It's tradition, and it's what nice people do on Sunday morning. This is just what we do. Well, we're Christians. Are you? Well, we go to church on Sunday. Well, what about your relationship with Jesus? Well, you know, we go to church on Sunday. Well, what about the rest of the week? Well, you know, we leave our Bible on the counter until next week when we pick it up again. Right? By the way, it's also not just in places like Dallas that you can find these kinds of people. You can find people all over who claim to be Christians, but whose faith in Christ makes no apparent difference in how they live their life, how they treat people, how they walk with God. They don't reject God entirely. But they're sure not all in for Jesus. And they're just kind of lukewarm. Are these people Christians? Not according to Jesus. That's why he, he pictures himself in chapter 3, verse 20, standing outside their church, knocking on the door, wanting to be let in. If Jesus is present in someone's life, then he's already in. He doesn't need to be let in. 
These are non-Christian people, in other words, who are purporting to be Christians, who claim that they are Christians, who go to a building that they call a church. But Jesus is outside. And Jesus says, you are neither cold nor hot. It would be better if you were one or the other. And the point is this. I've encountered this. Karen and I have, have talked about this a number of times as we've shared the gospel with people. You know who the hardest people to reach with the gospel are? It is not people who totally reject Jesus and who are living as if they are going to hell and happy about it. Those people are comparatively easy to reach. Because what happens is, is that they are not under any illusion that they are living in a way that pleases God. And so, you know, they're going out drinking every night. They're uh, sleeping around with whomever will, will hold still for them. They are, uh, they are doing whatever they want and letting their, as, 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 uh, as uh, David Crosby said, letting their freak flag fly. They are doing whatever they will. And what happens is eventually you come to the end of that life and you have this giant hollow sound of your soul beating up against the emptiness of your life and you go, there has got to be more to life than this. And then, if they have a Christian present in their life, they can say to them, you know, there is more to life than that and those people many of them at that point seize hold of Jesus like a drowning man going down because they know that life without him is empty and sad but the people who are in between who have got just enough Jesus to be inoculated, they are really, really hard. Because you first have to convince them they are not saved. That they do not, in fact, know Jesus. You know how you inoculate somebody, y'all? How you give them a vaccine? What you do is you take a weakened or a dead form of the disease and you inject it into their body. And then your body builds resistance to it as if you were really sick. But it prevents, once those antibodies are present, it prevents you from getting the real thing. And many people who go to church regularly do not have, if you'll forgive me, the phrase, the real disease. They aren't really infected with Jesus. What they have is a weakened and dead form of the faith, and their body has built up resistance to it. They have religion. By the way, I heard a, heard a pastor say this one time, and it is true. Christianity is the worst hobby in the world. I mean, it is. It's a terrible hobby. If you're looking for a, a, a fun hobby to do, Christianity will not make the top ten list. You would be better off going to brunch on Sunday morning, getting a boat, 
uh, getting a set of golf clubs, doing almost anything other than church on your Sunday morning if Jesus is a hobby. Because it will not change your life that way. But if you are all the way in, Jesus gives you an abundant, fulfilling, joyful life. Amen? And there is nothing better than that. But Christianity as a hobby is lousy. And Jesus says to these folks, these comfortably religious people who are prosperous, who are doing well materially, who have nothing obvious that they need, he says to them, you are poor, pitiable, wretched, blind, and naked. You might claim to be a Christian, but you're not. So what does he say to do to them? What is his counsel? He says, verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and, seen and salve to anoint your eyes that you might see. Remember, what are the three things that Laodicea is famous for? Their black clothes, their banking and gold, and their eye salve. And Jesus says, all these things that you all are involved in producing, they don't amount to anything. They have left your life empty and wretched. And what you need from a spiritual perspective is a renewal of your eyes, your clothing, and your real riches. You're going to need something better than whatever you have. You need a renewal of life. Now, obviously, these things are all metaphors. They're all based in the culture of Laodicea and its, and its various businesses, but the thrust of all of them is that Jesus is telling them you need to swap all the things that you love, all the things that your culture embraces for the true riches of faith in Jesus Christ. One of the temptations that a lot of people face is to want just enough Jesus to make your life better, but not enough to change your life completely. And Jesus doesn't work that way. He wants your whole life so he can entirely heal you of all your sin and all of your shame. And notice what he says in verse 19. You see this? Those whom I love. How does Jesus feel about these people? Is he chastising them because he hates them and he just wants to whack on them? He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. These are people Jesus loves. These are people that Jesus died for. They are people that he loves. They are people that he is telling hard truths to, not because he hates them, but because he loves them. 
And he wants them to have a different life than they have been living. But they're so lost, they don't even know that they're lost. And so he tells them, be zealous and repent. Genuine faith is always accompanied by deep repentance. The kind of commitment to following Jesus that changes the way you live and continues for the rest of your life. By the way, repentance and faith are not two different things. They are two ways of talking about the same thing. When you, when it, you know, as you're living your old life, you're going maybe this direction, and you're going in the direction that your lust and your sinfulness and your uh, wicked heart leads you to go. And then you meet Jesus, and you turn around so that you can follow Jesus. Well, repentance is the biblical word. It literally means to turn around. Okay? And so when you repent of your old life, you turn around. And faith is what you do in the following. It's two ways of talking about the same action of putting your trust in Jesus Christ and following him, turning away from your old life and toward Jesus that you might follow him in the the day-to-day of your life. Now look at verse 20. This verse has been used and abused by virtually every evangelist ever. But in context, it's about Jesus speaking to a so-called Christian church that has no Christians. His call is for someone to open the door that he might come in to fellowship with him is an invitation for someone, for this church to become a, a church in, in reality by having at least one person within it who actually knows Jesus. That's how Jesus comes into a church is through the life of one person who believes in him. Having one Christian present in it Jesus is promising his presence and fellowship with him if even one of them will invite him into his or her heart and life. And it's a rebuke at the same time that it's an invitation. It's a way of saying, I don't want you to miss out on having genuine relationship with me. But in order for that to happen, you have to realize where I am. And I am not among you right now. And the only way I will be is if at least one of you places his or her genuine faith in me. That's what verse 20 is all about. It's a rebuke and an invitation. Y'all, I am outside. If even, but if even one of you will open the door of your life to me, then I will come in. And I will fellowship with you and you will be with me forever. Genuine faith produces genuine repentance and genuine fellowship with Jesus. And it also produces both salvation and eternal reward. Look at verses 21 and 22. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If someone does, if someone puts their trust in Jesus Christ in a genuine way, there's the promise of salvation and eternal reward. Those who overcome, who will sit with Jesus on his throne, just as he overcame and sat with the Father on his throne, the promise is that you will rule with Jesus. That faith is rewarded, that Jesus is the treasure hidden in the field who alone is worth everything you are and possess. Everything that you are and possess. And if you want more information on ruling with Jesus and what that means, you can look at uh, Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, talks about how those who follow Jesus came to life and reigned with him. Uh, you can talk, look at Jesus' parables about the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13, his parable of the talents in Matthew 25. But the point of all these things is that those who put genuine faith in Jesus Christ are richly rewarded for it. You won't live to regret that decision, in other words. You'll be blessed by it for all eternity. And this letter concludes, as all of them do to this point, with this phrase, He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So what's the Spirit of God saying in this letter? It's this. To all of us. Are you hot? Are you cold? Or are you lukewarm? It's time to choose. And only one of those is acceptable before God. That we be all the way in for Jesus. And if, by the way, you are not, hear what Jesus says. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. This is not a letter of correction. Is just Jesus smiting us from on high. It is a letter of love given to people Jesus loves because he wants them to experience the real thing. And if you are in a place in your life where you have been playing church, where you have learned the vocabulary, where you have uh, have put the discipline into your life of showing up at church on the regular, maybe even reading your Bible and praying some. But you do not have a growing, thriving, deep, enjoyable relationship with Jesus. This letter is for you. And hear what the Spirit of God is saying. Because He loves you, He wants you to repent, and He is inviting you into real fellowship with him. May it never be that we heard this and failed to recognize ourselves and decided to continue living halfway in, in for Jesus and halfway in the world. Let's choose wisely and follow Jesus with everything we are. Amen? Let's pray. 
God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us enough to correct us if we are in error and to invite us to experience the real and the true fellowship with Jesus that you offer to us, the kind that results in eternal reward and rule with Christ. Father, we can't even imagine what that looks like. With our finite minds, it's beyond us to know what it, what it means to sit next to Jesus and reign over all created things in the universe. And yet, Father, that is the promise that you give us if we will follow Christ and embrace him fully. Father, I pray that if there is a man or a woman, a boy or a girl who has lived in hypocrisy and the absence of real faith, Father, I pray that today would be the day that your Holy Spirit would be speaking to them and saying to them, here I stand outside the door knocking. If you will let me in, I will change your life. Father, I pray they would open the door. That Jesus might come in and eat with them and they might have fellowship with him, not just today, but for all eternity. And they might discover the real joy of knowing and following Jesus. Not as a hobby or as a Sunday buddy or as something good people do on the weekend but as Lord and Savior and God and King. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.